This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, new opportunities for ELSAs. And Marines to the rescue of Catalina Island. Also, Diamond flew a sweet hybrid electric aircraft. And we're going to hear a little bit more about the Waco and Icon changing their top brass. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Have a 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, first, our guest, uh, we've got Amy Rose with us this week. And a lot of folks probably haven't heard of Amy, but she had just the coolest opportunity this past summer. Yeah, she got a chance to go to France on AOPA's dime, I would say, and uh, got to participate in a bunch of aviation events, and I'm really excited to hear about what she did. Yeah, so I caught up with her, and, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But first, I want to start off, even before the news, with something you came up with a couple of years ago that's now become a, a tradition for us, this being our Thanksgiving show. Right. I want to talk a little bit about what we're thankful for in aviation this year. Yeah, and I was going to uh, have a tip of the hat to... Um, Furman Bisher, former uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution sports columnist who came up with the Thanksgiving thankful idea. We'll tip our hat to Furman, and we'll hopefully have a good celebration with our families this year. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. I am thankful for, I've just been jazzed about and and thankful for, um, I guess, a happier regulatory environment. I like it. uh, Which sounds super lame. Basically, what's bringing us cheaper avionics, non-TSO'd avionics, and... um, just more common sense, uh, I think, with, with the whole certification process and, and bringing really cool new technology to, uh, to owners. And le- it makes it less expensive. Uh, so I'm going to be thankful yeah. for uh, I'm going to be thankful for the basic med idea, but I also want to let our podcast listeners know that I went, I went the route of the third class medical. So I'm thankful for that I passed my third class medical, but I'm also thankful to see a <laughs> bunch of people with basic med out there flying. Yeah. Yeah, it's like over, what is it, over 40,000 now. That's a, that's a good number, and it'll yeah. just grow. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's a good one. I am thankful for the airlines, which is not something we say often, but uh, I'm really thankful for them for creating all these hiring opportunities, which is 
as we know, drawing folks up from the bottom and creating just incredible opportunity for um, young people, career changers, all kinds of interesting folks uh, that I've talked to this year who who've taken the plunge and are learning to fly or uh, re-upping their skills to, to be able to make it to the airline. So that's that's really driving a lot of uh, a lot of exciting stuff for flight schools. It is. And I, I'm going to go ahead and, and call an audible here. You know, I spoke a little bit about what we're thankful for ahead of time, but I'm going to go ahead and say I'm real thankful for a lot of the high school students learning about science, technology, engineering, and math, and really uh, stepping up to the plate. And a lot of the teachers also are stepping up to the plate with this, and um, they're making aviation cool again. We had a couple of conferences that yeah. we participated in, and and uh, one of them, uh, the folks um, in the panel said that they wanted to make aviation cool. I think that is happening. So I'm thankful for uh, renewed energy in um, science, technology, engineering, and math leading to aviation, leading to jobs. Yeah, that's awesome. I know you're, um, something you're passionate about is STEM for young kids, so that's, that's a good one. So I'm going to go one that's a little bit maybe cheesy, uh, so don't, uh, but I mean this. Uh, I'm thankful for the, the folks uh, that we work with, the folks on the editorial staff, at, uh, at AOPA and, and in the magazines. Um, you know, we've just wrapped up this huge project that we're going to talk a little bit more about um, for the next episode, but uh, this book that we've, that we've done, this AOPA history book. Next year is the 80th anniversary of AOPA, and uh, over the past six months or so, we've undertaken this massive project to catalog AOPA's history. And I'm really proud of the book uh, and the whole team putting it together, massive effort, and uh, really excited about that. I think that's a good one to be thankful for. I do value my team members in the e-media department and also on the magazine. We all do look out for each other, pat each other on the back whenever we can. So that's a good one, Ian. I'm going to be thankful for something I did this year to keep the cost of aviation down, which is to join a flying club. I joined the Westminster Aerobats Club, and we have a cool. Cessna 152 Aerobat, which is just a blast to fly. <laughs> um, That's awesome. You talk about basic, basic skills. It's really a skill builder. So I'm thankful that we have that opportunity. And, you know, more people could do that. They could join a flying club to keep the cost of aviation down. And I'm just thankful that I have that opportunity and also to my family for letting me do that. Yeah. So um, have you taken it upside down yet? No, not yet. I need to do that. Uh, that would be cool. I, I definitely want that to uh, to be one of my goals. Well, that's that's the end run. Yeah, I always wonder with folks who who own aerobats, how many of them actually take it upside down, or just you know, it's just the idea that you can do that. Um, yeah, you know that that draws you to it. That's really neat. Well, I know someone who does it, Catherine Cavagnaro down in uh, in Sewanee, yes. Tennessee. She takes hers upside down, sideways, and you know, she's a spin training guru. Absolutely. So yeah, definitely people yeah. do. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. Hey, all right, well, let's get to the news. We're going to start off, we're going to run quick this week because there's not a ton of huge news, but some a couple interesting things. LSAs, now everybody knows, light sport airplanes have been around for years now, but you may not know that there was a specific rule prohibiting, or there has been and still is technically, a rule prohibiting experimental light sport aircraft use in flight training. Right, and also for compensation or higher. And I'll tell you why that's important to me in a little bit. But yeah, that is uh, an interesting thing. And now there's a commenting section that's open right now. Yeah, so the proposed rule will take away that restriction and allow certain uh, exemptions, I'll call them. Basically, they, they call them LOTAs um, or, you know, leather of deviation authority, which is basically, you know, the FAA saying, yeah, okay, what you want to do makes sense to us, and that's fine. 
and so this could be, like you mentioned, uh, really big for a lot of kind of niche sectors of aviation. Yeah, and so here's my here's one thing that I'd like to do at some point, maybe quote unquote after I retire, Ian. You and I both have our, our seaplane rating, so I really would like to get a seaplane and my commercial certificate, which I should have probably nailed that down a while back. I'll talk to my instructor about that commercial certificate soon, but. I want to get that commercial, and I want to get a seaplane, and I want it to be so that I can get in one of these LSAs because they're less expensive to operate and give people like um, aerial tours. So that that's where I'm interested in this the whole commenting section and possible change on the ELSA field. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Um, so, hey, you've got a few days left. If this issue is important to you to comment, um, you can go on AOPA's website, aopa.org. Just you know, search for this issue. And there's a link direct to the comments. So go on there, um, click the link, and uh, tell the FAA what uh, what you think about the rule and, and how it might impact you. Uh, let's all do that. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, moving on. This is a kind of an unusual story that I, I, I think we both found pretty interesting. And that is that uh, Catalina Island, uh, which I know you've been to, uh, is getting some help from the Marines. Yeah. And so, Ian, this is a, a really interesting airport in the sky, basically, at Catalina Island. It is a very... It's like a mountain. The airport's on a mount, sort of a flat mountaintop at Catalina. And Catalina's, what, about 20 miles off the coast of uh, Los Angeles. And the runway is it was in disrepair. I was I visited there uh, two years ago when we had our fly-in at Camarillo Airport in uh, California and got to land with uh, my buddy Mike Jesh with the uh, Cessna Pilot Society. Who Quick shout-out to Mike. He's a great guy, and he's a captain on an airline. And also an Avid 182 flyer. So we had a wonderful overnight camping trip there. And it really exposed me to the beauty of this this island. But the runway is in terrible repair. And apparently, if you live in California, flight instructors advise you on how to land at this airport before you are allowed to land at this airport. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, And I think that because it's 20 miles off the coast, it would have been really, really hard and really expensive for uh, normal DOT folks to, you know, revitalize this airport. So the Marines are here to the rescue. The U.S. Marine Corps are mm. going to hit the beach. They're going to carry out the mission. And it seems like it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And so it's just, just this really creative solution where uh, the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, uh, which is from Camp Pendleton, they're going to rebuild it as part of a training exercise, which which makes, I think, a ton of sense when you consider that uh, a lot of their mission, you know, when they first go in is creating infrastructure exactly. for the rest of the forces to be able to use. So um, why not use it on something that uh, the rest of us really, really need and, and want to use here? That's right. And um, and so it gives them that, that kind of uh, experience, that breadth of experience, and also Helps us pilots out. Now, that island, Catalina Island itself, is run by Conservancy, Hmm. and it is a beautiful island. There's not much there. I mean, there's a little bitty city kind of at the bottom. And then uh, way back when, the Wrigley family owned, uh, I think they owned a lot of the infrastructure on the island. There was a casino there at one time. Oh, wow. And and the Chicago Cubs practiced there. They did spring training there a long time ago. You're kidding. No, man. Oh, my gosh. There are buffalo that roam the island. And uh, when I was there with with Mike Jesh and uh, some of the Conservancy folks took us on a tour, Ian, there's a walking tour. You could fly your airplane in, you could camp overnight, and you could do a little bit of a walking tour up and down around that airport environment, but you go into a valley and you climb over hills and dales and everything, and it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, you see all kinds of 
of rock. You see some Native American artifacts, and, and it's just a very interesting trip. So it's more than just a day trip, and they have a killer restaurant right at the top of the mountain, right at the airport there. Cool. And it's just awesome. It is definitely worth a trip. That's awesome. Yeah, so that work's going to um, start in January. So looking forward to seeing what the outcome is there, and uh, it should be really cool. So, hey, so from a place that sounds like time forgot a little bit to, you know, future tech, Diamond and Siemens uh, have come together and created a really neat serial hybrid uh, test bed. Now, Diamond, of course, being a, an engineering-focused company, this is not terribly surprising. But uh, late last month in Austria, they took a DA40, modded it, and um, flew this really awesome multi-engine serial hybrid. And so I was uh, doing a little research on the airplane. And so the DA40 is, a, is usually set up as a single-engine aircraft. Yeah. But for this test, they put a, a, a pair of independent electric propulsion systems on it, and there are propellers uh, mounted on each side of a canard wing. Did I, did I say canard right? Is that how you pronounce it? I think canard <laughs> is good. So the, Yeah, you're good. You're good. The two motors generate a combined 150 kilowatts, or about 200 horsepower, between them. So that's pretty yeah. good for takeoff. And there's a generator that provides uh, 110 kilowatts. And so that's, you know, obviously that's plenty to get the aircraft airborne. Yeah. And it just sounds like it's going to be a cool way to go if we could uh, further develop this technology and, you know, kind of, you know, bring bring the price down further and, and help people fly for cheaper yet again. Yeah, it's pretty neat. You know, um, there's been all kinds of solutions to the whole electric question from pure electric, uh, like the Sunflyer is going to be and the Alpha Electro is now to these hybrids, you know, that's more, and, and I, I guess, you know, you and I have talked about this because we've both had uh, Priuses, but right. more the Prius model, which is you've got an electric motor that's being assisted by a, uh, a gasoline engine. And so that's more kind of what this was. They say just pure electric, the, the range is only 20 minutes. That's not very long, but it is still, that's still long no. enough to go around the <laughs> airport a few times to practice your basic. But if you go ahead and, and if you add more to the propulsion system besides just electric, then you can extend your range, right? And you can uh, go further, you can stay up longer and, um, and really get things done. Yeah, yeah, it extends it to five hours, actually, which is pretty impressive. So yeah, That would be good. Yeah, yeah, you know, Diamond, um, they're known kind of as an engineering company, and uh, so I think this is not something that we'll see in production probably in this form because they, they've been known to do this where they test kind of out their ideas and really forward-thinking ideas. Um, but no doubt, um, whether it's a couple years from now or five or ten years from now, this sort of project will help inform what they're going to do in the future and, and what's going to work commercially. I think it does. It is like a harbinger of things to come. And, I, and and obviously trying to perfect the technology is the key thing. And really just to go, just to show how far you can go, Ian, and um, in, in moving forward with, with things that we really didn't think about. And you look back at um, Solar Impulse 2 and some other, other aircraft that are really pushing the envelope of what we can do with the technology and the, and the electric technology that we have right now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, so we're going to ping pong. We're going to go back to history uh, with Walker. So you guys know Waco. These are these incredibly gorgeous biplanes. And um, the Waco Classic Aircraft Company is still manufacturing them new in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, they're making the Waco and the Great Lakes. And uh, most recently, we featured this Waco on Amphibs, which, uh, man, what a beautiful airplane. Boy, and it's a tall airplane, too. It's got long legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So Waco, uh, new ownership, uh, was owned by uh, Peter Bowers, who a lot of folks know because he was kind of the face of the company. He toured the airplanes. 
But he's getting some help now from the Dimer Group out of Fort Lauderdale. I don't mean to put you on the spot. So are they going to still manufacture it up there in Battle Creek, or are they going to take that down to Florida now? You know, no specific plans, but they do say they're going to keep the Battle Creek facility with the 30 employees. They've got a repair station there. So I would guess that they'll probably keep it there. It's actually... You know, this is kind of a funny piece of uh, knowledge. It's a huge ordeal to move a type certificate, to physically move the location, not necessarily the tooling and everything else. I mean, that's an ordeal as well. But just with the FAA, to be able to move the location of where an airplane is produced is a huge huge endeavor my guess is that they're going to probably keep it in battle creek gotcha because it's a little bit easier to do it that way they also make the great lakes that little bitty uh, biplane and that's like a sport biplane yeah pretty is a pretty popular it kind of looks like a pits to to a degree yeah yeah and i know that's pretty popular to sport pilots as well yeah you know the other thing we should say and i think we we learned this when we were there for the flying a couple years ago is it's not like making a, a 172 or something like that where it's like you know you're just hammering rivets all day i mean these are really hand produced airplanes i think it's a really specialized sort of skill set so um my guess is Recreating that somewhere else is probably not worth the trouble. That's interesting. Uh, well, uh, we wish them the best, and you know uh, anything they could do to keep those airplanes going. And like you said, it's a, they're handmade, they're custom made, yeah. they're and they're beautiful. The fit and finish is awesome. And if you have never ridden in a, or flown a Waco, it is a trip. It oh is really gosh, something yeah. that people should do. Yeah, it, I totally agree. Yeah, it's a treat. It is really a treat. So want to finish it off today with another piece of uh, corporate news, and that's with Icon. Um, maybe not a huge surprise. We knew this would come at some point, but uh, Kirk Hawkins, CEO of Icon, he's out. That is, to me, a really big surprise because he brought the company along from nothing to where it is now. Yeah. And uh, he does have a you know he does have a background as a military fighter pilot, and mm-hmm. he scrapped and scrapped and got that thing off the ground. But I was surprised to see that he was out as Icon CEO, Ian. Yeah, you know, he was a survivor. I mean, you know, as, as, as we've talked about, they've had a number of scandals—well, scandals, I don't know—a number of hiccups, I'll call it, uh, the last couple of years coming into production, and, and their production has been slow. And the airplane has gotten a lot more expensive than it was promised to be. And, you know, typical stuff that we see with uh, with new sort of out there really ambitious projects. But, yeah, as, as the company changes from a startup to a what's got to become a more production mode, it was determined that it was time for him to, to step into a new role. So now he will stay with the company in some role. They just haven't said what it is yet. Well, and also they didn't say who will replace him uh, and be in charge of the $380,000 sport amphibious airplane and i know that they also have some some designs that they're thinking about for the airplane that might make it a little bit less expensive and you know future versions too yeah so um we'll see it'll be interesting to see if you know maybe they'll keep hawkins on as some sort of a you know spiritual advisor or something like that um you know a lot of times you need guys who who have that ambition to keep pushing forward and i know they're looking at new products even so um, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, and they are actually uh, pushing up the number of aircraft they're making per month. And so it looks like hopefully they'll, they'll get caught up to their backlog. It is a very popular airplane, and we've written a lot about it online and in the magazines. And if folks want to find out more about it, they can go to AAPA.org and take a look around. Yeah, great. Okay, hey, so let's bring on Amy. Um, like we said, Amy Rose took this trip uh, to Europe last year on a scholarship. A uh, young woman who's been involved heavily in aviation um, in a very short time. She's gotten just totally immersed in just an, an incredible uh, resume she brought to this and a really deserving winner. So uh, let's hear more about her trip.
Amy Rose, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, we're talking today because you had the, a great experience a couple months ago. You, uh, you got a chance to go to France. Yes. It was fantastic. So you became a scholarship recipient um, through the International AOPA uh, to do an air tour, the Hop Air Tour. Yep. Very thankful to them, to everyone all throughout AOPA in the U.S. and in France. Genuinely had a great time. Thanks so much for hosting me. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, we'll, we'll get into the tour in a minute, but I want to I know a little bit about you and your background. I mean, you're from uh, Northern Virginia? Yep. I'm from Prince William County. So... I, I get all the fun of getting to go into D.C. Um, and also all of the fun of that airspace and learning how to, to get around that. And so tell me about, your are you a student? Uh, do you work? What, what's, uh, what about yourself? Yeah, I'm a full-time student at George Mason University, and I'm studying uh, aviation systems engineering, geospatial intelligence, and operations research. Wow. So a lot of really fun stuff. And over there, um, I'm pretty active I, with the Aerospace Engineering Club. Um, and organizations like that. But when I'm not at school, you can, of course, find me um, at Manassas Airport, which is where I fly out of. I fly there, you know, uh, once, twice a week. Got my private and instrument rating working on commercial now. Uh, I also work there a couple times a week as a customer service representative for aviation adventures. Okay, so, cool. Cool. Been a while like dispatching um, and stuff like that. And I actually also work at the Smithsonian Institution National Air and Space Museum. I work in the STEM education department, so it's a lot of uh, community outreach and education and engagement on that front. Wow. And I, I know you also, you spend a lot of time volunteering at school and, um, you know, multiple languages, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh. So uh, how are your grades? Because it sounds like you don't actually have time to study. <laughs> well, thankfully, um, everything that I study, all the classes I'm taking are super interesting to me and I'm, I'm just really interested in them. So it doesn't feel like I have to study. It feels like like I just want to. I want to learn more because I'm seeing a lot of overlap in what I learned in school with my flight training and ground training and just talking to different people at work. So it all, it's just a big circle. Cool. So complements everything else. Cool. So now how'd you get into flying? Oh, sounds really cheesy. Um, it was actually my family. A lot of them live overseas. So we would fly a lot as a kid, just commercially. And... I think I was I was pretty late to the game. I was a senior in high school, and it came time to start deciding sort of what career path I would want to go down, which schools to pick. And it dawned on me that there are actual people in the front of the plane, like flying it. <laughs> I thought, well, now that's not something you hear about every day. And the more I looked into it, you know, the more challenging it looked, but also the more awesome it looked. You know, it's one of those jobs that when you say you're a pilot, everyone's like, what? That that's awesome. They don't say, oh, okay, cool you know, and I just got more and more into it. Hmm. So nobody in your family flies? No, no, just passengers. Um, uh -huh. Of course, uh -huh. they're all excited to get, you know, airline tickets or, you know, get to go up in a little Cessna Skyhawk or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so when did you take your first lesson? How old were you? Um, I was I was 19, I think it was. Um, yes, almost two years ago, spring semester of uh, 2017. Wow, that's great. Okay, so talk to me about the tour a little bit. You won the scholarship. You, you got a chance to go to Europe. So tell me, what is the tour and, um, and what do you do on it? So it's a biannual tour. So every two years, uh, they host about 45 pilots between the ages of 18 and 24. Now, the majority of those pilots are French, but there are some foreign representatives. So I was very lucky to be the third American who got to go and uh, compete. So we're actually competing on a few different levels. 
we have cross-country flights sort of between the airports. So we were actually flying to eight different airports all around the country. You know, as far north as La Divisio, as far south as Po, we were sort of like in the middle, out west. It was great. And during that part, they were tracking sort of how precise we were flying. So we'd make flight plans and then they would put transponders and loggers in our cockpits and see actually, you know, if we filed for 2,500, are we flying at 2,500 feet or are we flying at, you know, 2,581? You know, we get points taken off for that kind of stuff. And then we sort of have to adjust it, you know, with our speed because it's all navigation by pilotage and dead reckoning. So if anyone's working on their private and feels like it's, you know, it's outdated because you can just use a GPS or whatever, no, it's actually really awesome and really useful. And then the days that we weren't traveling between airports, you know, we would spend, you know, between two and four days at each city. They would judge us on different maneuvers, mostly like private pilot maneuvers. So we would just go up, find a local practice area, you know, do our steep turns, soft field, short field, that kind of stuff. Um, And then we got to do other kinds of flights like aerobatics. So they brought in special aerobatic flight instructors to instruct us in their planes. We got to be passengers in other really awesome historic aircraft like the Antonov An-2, the Douglas DC-3. So we, we flew pretty much every single day. Wow. I think there was only one day I didn't fly, and that was because of weather. So what was the flying like? I mean, um, I, a lot of pilots, when they think about flying in Europe, they think, well, there aren't that many airports, and it's really expensive, and um, ATC is hard to deal with. And so what, what was your experience? My experience was pretty unique, I'd say. Um, we, a lot of the time, you know, we did the typical communications, you know, departing from the large airports. You know, you talk to ground, you talk to tower, you talk to whichever departure or approach, you know. But we actually had our own unique frequency for a lot of it. Hmm. Yeah. So there was one just for uh, Les Bleus, like the young pilots. And we had a couple controllers who would help us out, you know. So we didn't actually even use our our tail numbers. We would just use our call sign. So, for example, they made me number one. So I'd say, you know, hop tour zero one. This is where I am. This is what I'm doing. And then they would sort of tell me how to proceed. We did go to a variety of different airports. So I got to see the military bases, the international airports. the regional sort of aero club type of airports, they were pretty similar in that, you know, there's, like I said, you know, like you talk to ground, you talk to tower, um, you know, you just ask for progressive taxi instructions. It was interesting because there were a lot more grass fields, but I mean, hmm. I'm from the DC metro area, so never really expected to see a lot of grass field operations there, I suppose. Yeah. Their charts are a bit different. So just had a look at the symbols there. Um, their airspace is a bit different. Their licensing is a bit different. But with the help of an instructor, it, it was really awesome. It was enough of a challenge that like, it kept me on my toes. I had to keep thinking ahead. But it, it was not impossible. Hmm. So tell me about your, um, before you went, your experience. I mean, you, um, you had a certificate and you were just uh, working or finishing your instrument rating. Is that right? Right, yeah. Um, I finished my instrument rating um, in June. And then in July, um, I think not even a month later, I, I went to France. Huh. So most pilots, they have that experience of, going from instrument where they never get to see the ground uh-huh. to uh, visual flying where it's like they have to relearn how to do that. So you went to from these extremes where you were training and then could only use it. So what was that like? It was, it was quite an, an adjustment. And in France, they, they get their private pilot's license and then they just time build like crazy. And it's not until much later that they get their instrument rating because it's it costs quite a bit more in France. So a lot of people are like, oh, wow, it's so cool that, you know, you've got your instrument rating. I'm like, it's not, though. Like, I, I'm, you know, I have to juggle a lot. I mean, sure, it's a different 
kind of scan, I suppose, but you have to look at your map, you have to look at your flight plan, and then you have to look at the ground to make sure that you're heading in the right area. I think I think it was really fun and just sort of like threw me in the deep ends back into VFR flying. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you do? Um, I think I did all right. <laughs> in the, the first air rally, my, my team, so we worked in teams of two, pilot and navigator. Uh, we actually came in first place. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. That was a real surprise for, for me. Um, it was really cool. That, that was the actual rally event. So they installed atomic clocks in our cockpits and they timed us down to like the 10th of a second. So, I mean, they gave us certain points that we had across and then they just gave us a ton of pictures that we had to find them. And then we had to plot them on ground maps, not aeronautical charts. And then we had to sort of measure them and we had to make sure that we cross them at the right angle so they're not like false images. And, you know, if you cross it five seconds early or five seconds late, they, they penalized you. Wow. So for somebody who's uh, majoring in geospatial mapping and who loves flying, that sounds like it was, it's like made for you, a challenge made for you. Oh my God. That was my absolute favorite. It was, it was awesome. You know, <laughs> cause you, you have to think about like two major things at first I was like, so proud that I had found the point. I was very pleased. But then I looked at the time in the in the cockpit and the time I was supposed to uh I was supposed to cross it. And we had been given a ground speed to stick to, I think it was like eighty or eighty-five knots, and we had a block of altitude. We could fly between, I don't know, like eight hundred and twelve hundred feet or something like that. And I realized I was really in advance. So that was slow flight to the extreme. Like I just took out all the power, dumped in all the flat. You also <laughs> deviate from your course by a certain number of degrees so i wasn't entirely doing s turns but i was doing whatever i could to be aerodynamically inefficient <laughs> and so what were you flying oh i was flying a viper sd4 um, it's a light sport two-seater um it is a beautiful plane my goodness and a viper sd4 where is it i, I i've never heard of it where is it made do you remember uh from slovakia oh, i think okay. wow yeah I haven't seen any in the U.S., um, but it's nice. It's a low-wing, bubble canopy. Um, it was my first time flying a plane with a Rotax engine, so I got in and I saw like 4,500 RPM for the first time <laughs> as opposed to a, like in a Cessna 172, like 2,400. You're was like, oh, it's broken. Something's wrong. And, and then there's that experience, you know, to stop it. Of course, you don't pull a mixture. You just turn the key off and the prop just clunk, you know, and it's over. Mm-hmm. Yep, and um, having to get it started every morning, getting... um getting real physical with that, that propeller. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're burping the oil. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> so what about the language? I mean, it, was it, did you speak French, I guess? Yeah. Um, I had actually, I had actually left early from the governor's French Academy, um, back in the U S. So I was, um, a professor there, uh, as well as a resident advisor. Mm. It's a full immersion program for high school juniors and seniors. And essentially we take them to a university and well, it's it's summer school, but for the top 60 students of the French language. So they have coursework. Um, we go on field trips. There are clubs and they just live there. You know, breakfast, lunch and dinner. It's all French. You can't you sign an oath the first night. You cannot speak a word of English. Oh my so I think quite a lot. Um, but of course, you know, getting to France the first day and being with all these native speakers and all these, you know, young people who are speaking very quickly. Um it was, it was overwhelming the, the first day. Um, and then I sort of, you know, got into the groove of it. And then, um, after like, you know, it was like the third day or something that the race actually started. And then I heard the French on the radio. So. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, so was ATC a challenge? I mean, I know, I think a lot of folks don't realize it's like English is the, you know, the official international language, but, uh, that doesn't mean they always speak it on the radio. 
Right. There are actually certain airports and certain types of operations uh, where you are required to, to speak French. Hmm. I was looking at some of the airports we went to and some of the, um, the backups that we were planning just in case we had to um, deviate for weather. And I was preparing. I mean, granted, I have an instructor with me who's fluent in French. Um, but, you know, I'm still trying to be independent and trying to do this as much as I can by myself. But, yeah, I did speak French for most of the time. The instructor helped me out a lot. Occasionally, I'd speak in French, and the controllers <laughs> would respond to me in English. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know, you're like, oh, I'm not doing a very good job right now, am I? <laughs> oh, God, help the controllers are trying to listen to me. Um, I was just, you know, I lined up and waited, and I mixed up the words for takeoff and landing. I was like, wait, I can't land if I'm already on the ground. Hold on a second. Oh. <laughs> um, so what um, what were some of your favorite spots, some of your favorite airports? Oh, my... I think for the scenery, my favorite was Landivisio, which is um, in the northwest. I really liked flying by the sea. Mm. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Not to mention the airport itself is an aeronaval military base. The runway, I think, was like almost 10,000 feet long. Mm, wow. Just in my tiny little 600-kilogram plane going on that runway. Uh, they had actually granted us authority to land two at a time. Yeah. Um, on on that runway just to expedite because you know it we do everything in uh two minute sequences you know from starting the engine to uh to taxiing over so there's really no room for a go around of course you know if you're not going to make a safe landing go around but you have to think about it in now less than two minutes there's going to be another plane coming into land and we have minimum 45 planes doing this we had another 15 for a crew wow you'd have to squeeze yourself real and so you had to stick every landing. Wow. That's a huge uh, contingent of folks. So who, you said you had a big support crew. Um, who, who actually puts it on? In France or? Yeah, yeah. In France, um, I mean, there were so many, everyone was so supportive. AOPA really did a fantastic job of supporting me. Um, there was the president who actually hosted me um, at his home, and he really made me feel welcome, and that comforted me quite a lot. He was always, you know, checking in on me, like, during the race, um, asking for pictures and updates, making sure that everything was going well. And then there was everyone from the FFA, the French Aeronautic Federation, making sure that I'm having a good time. And a lot of that just consisted of, you know, welcome events at City Halls. They'd pull me aside, making sure I'm trying the, the French food. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, not a hard thing to do. Oh, oh, not at all. That was lovely. <laughs> Then, you know, all the all the pilots and all the, the crew, the logistics teams, you know, making sure that I really feel welcome, teaching me all of their slang. Hmm. Yeah, everyone was just so welcoming over there. So not to stereotype um, the French, but, you know, in the U.S., you, you finish flying and you go to somebody's hangar and you, you know, crack open a beer. There, do they, like, you know, open a bottle of Bordeaux from, you know, 1978 or something like that? <laughs> God, I still remember, I think I was in Bourges, which is um, pretty close to Paris, um, in, you know, near the middle of France. And we had just gotten there that evening, and we weren't allowed to drink at all during the race. And this one man from the city, I think he was um, in local government or something, he found out that I was American. He's like, oh, you must try my wine. It's very famous to this part of France. And I was like, I, I would love to, but I, I really don't think that I should. And I was really afraid that I was offending him because he kept offering it to me. And I was like, trust me, trust me, I want to. <laughs> but I'm flying in the morning and I just, I really want to be on the safe side. No one else is drinking. I, I can't do it. Yeah, we were, we were in airport hangers, but there were still white tablecloths, um, actual, you know, plates and cutlery, um, drinking wow. out of 
nice glass bottles off. Oh, very civilized. They, yeah. You wouldn't think that you were in an airport hangar. That's cool. Okay, so Amy, you mentioned um, that you would spend a couple of days in every city. So what were some of the things you did while you were on the ground? While we were on the ground, uh, we were presenting at different sort of air shows and community events. So we had something called Amphicabine, which is an open cockpit. We had a few of our planes, and we would let the public just sort of sit inside, take uh, take the controls, you know, while on the ground, of course, and teach them sort of how an airplane works, you know, let them see what it feels like to sit inside. We also had flight simulators and booths, um, building paper airplanes, trying to teach them a little bit about the forces of flight and encourage younger people and just, you know, the public in general to pursue careers in STEM and specifically aviation. So it was great. Um, thank goodness, you know, all the kids understood my American accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you're uh, you're ambassadors of a sort. Yeah, um, we were called the general aviation ambassadors because at least what I noticed when I was talking to different people there is they thought that, you know, aviation is just sort of commercial or military. They're either those fighter jets or the huge cargo planes, or they're the planes that take them on their summer vacation. But, you know, they never really see these little two or four seaters Hmm. and they're super accessible. Our main goal is making sure that they know that they can fly if that's what they want to do. It's truly accessible. So um, looking back, what were your, I don't know, tell me the, the best thing you learned on the trip. I really learned that the only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. Hmm. And I say that because I went in with a mix of cocky, like, yeah, I'm an instrument rated private pilot. I'm from America. You know, I've got this. And then I actually, you know, got there and I realized what a struggle it was and, you know, how different the language is and the, you know, the country is and the culture and then the actual plane. And I remember there was just one time, it was like the first flight, I realized I was coming in high and like, it's like, all right, I can take out power. I can use flaps um, or I can slip. And I was like, you know what? Let me just be safe. Cause I've never flown a low wing before. And I just have a hunch. And I asked the instructor, I was like, can I, can I slip to, to help myself land a little bit better? And he's like, no, 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 we're not, we're not slipping this kind of plane. You have to know a bit more about the differences between high wings and low wings before you can do that. And I'm just really glad that I asked. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure it wouldn't have been catastrophic. I'm sure he would have helped me. But just making sure that I'm thinking things through before I do them, especially, you know, when someone just lent me a brand new Viper SD4. Yeah. (laughs) No dumb questions. Just the ones that you don't ask. Oh, that's good. That's good. And I guess best challenge. You talked about a little bit about your favorite challenge. But what was the what what do you think was the hardest challenge? Definitely the aerobatics. (laughs) Could have seen me beforehand. I was a nervous wreck. My first instructor and I used to like to joke that, um, He's afraid of heights, and I don't like roller coasters, and we just make a fantastic team like that. <laughs> I, I was genuinely nervous. I, he said, you know, empty out your pockets. And I was like, I'm keeping a six-sack in here just in case. I, I never get motion sick, but I was I was really afraid that something might happen if we're going up. So it was aerobatics and also mm-hmm. sort of spin training. Um, I knew at some point I would have to get there, and I knew that it would make me a safer safer pilot if I could actually practice the recovery. And I got up there. He let me do the takeoff. First of all, my first time in a tail dragger as well. Mm. And I'm in a parachute with like a headset strapped to my head. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I just heard about ground looping tail draggers. I was like, please don't let this happen. <laughs> and as soon as we got to altitude, he was like, all right, are you ready to spin? It's like, no, 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 no. He was like, all right, you said you're going to start your commercial training. I want 60 degree steep turns. I was like, uh, oh, okay, you know. So I did that. And he's like, all right, good job. You're spinning now. I was like, no. And 
we'll warm you up. We'll do a barrel roll. I was like, in what world is a barrel roll better than a spin? He's like, ah, it's, it's still 1G. We're fine. And we did it. And it was awesome. Mm-hmm. He let me try it in the other side. And then we did loops and hammerheads and different just basic aerobatic maneuvers. And we did spins too. Oh, but yeah, just getting over my initial fear of just <laughs> of getting air sick or something and, you know, being embarrassed and having to come back to all the pites that I had already become friends with saying that I couldn't do it, you know, hmm. I wasn't going to say no. I, I knew I had to try it, but I, I was definitely the most nervous for that flight. I was also the most pleasantly surprised. And that was probably one of my favorites. That's like. Cool. In all of my flights since the beginning of Amy Rose pilot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, um, so what's next? What's next for you? You got to do this cool tour. You're you're still training, um, working aviation at uh, Aviation Adventures. What's what's next? I've got a lot of things that I'd like to to accomplish next. Sort of since that tour, I decided that if I'm trying to time build for my commercial, I don't want to just do the same old cross countries and my flight school is 172. I want to sort of expand those horizons. So that's part of why I applied for this. Um, I, I'm applying to learn to fly gliders. I'm, I got checked out in uh, my school's 152, which is pretty similar, but I'd like to get checked out in the other kinds of planes, see what I can do with maybe like some complex endorsements or a high-performance endorsement and get that commercial rating. And in the meantime, I'm still studying at George Mason. I'm on track to graduate next fall. Don't know what I'll do afterwards. Maybe a master's degree. Um, I don't know. Any interest in flying for a living? Definitely. Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, ideal, super awesome flying career goal would be flying meteorological data acquisition or remote sensing aircraft for NASA or NOAA. That, that would be so awesome. You know, like a storm tracer. Oh yeah. Um, But I'd also really want to fly, you know, international for the airlines, but I also really want to stay in general aviation because there are just so many planes I haven't gotten a chance to fly yet. There's so many awesome planes out there that I really want to, you know, get in the get in the cockpit. And also, you know, ugh, uh, I could talk about this forever. You know, learning to fly seaplanes and multi-engine, of course, and flying, you know, like bush flying. Oh, there's so much <laughs> that I want to do with flying. <laughs> that's cool. Oh, that was a tough question. That was a real tough one. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Well, Amy, best of luck to you as uh, as you go forward on all those really cool and exciting paths. And um, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you so, so much for having me. David, I, I know, I know she was really deserving, uh, but man, could you imagine doing a trip like that when you were that age? What a what a cool gift! It would be neat to go overseas at that age, and also, you know, she is an aviator at heart and uh, has really taken to the aviation field. And we we wish her all the best. And yeah, I would have loved to have gone along with her. I kind of wish I did. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time, Dave. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>